Hi guys, welcome along to our next podcast. It's Shay Garaval, your host of the Asian Women Festival podcast in association with BritAsia TV. And today we're talking about a subject which is so important, probably don't get talked enough about, we don't discuss it enough really, and that is domestic abuse. And we're joined by two trailblazing women who in their own rights are doing so much to help so many. So I'm really chuffed to say that we're joined by Polly Harar, who is the founder and CEO of Sharon Project, and also Shaista Gahir, who is the co-chair of Muslim Women's Network UK. Shaista, Polly, thank you for joining us today. Um, it's a pleasure to have you both with us. Um, before we delve into the topic around domestic abuse, I just wanted to set the context of the fantastic work that you both do, because I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of people here, different organizations not really be aware. So let's start off with yourself first, Polly. What does Sharon Project do? Okay, so we're a national charity that supports women, particularly South Asian women who have been or at, at risk of becoming um, disowned by their families. And that's largely due to domestic abuse, forced marriage and honor-based abuse. And what about yourself, Shaista? What does Muslim Women's Network do? So Muslim Women's Network UK, national charity, but based in Birmingham. Yeah. So we do research, we've got a national helpline, campaigning and advocacy work. Um, although most of our service users are Muslim women, uh, we also have service users who are men as well. Right. Um, suffering, for example, um, of domestic abuse and also women of other backgrounds and faiths. So there's so much to talk about when we talk about domestic abuse. And I'm going to be really frank with you. When I spoke to you, Polly, before we came on, you put me right. And, and I've thought to myself, wow, I've been working at the BBC for how many years and I've never thought about my use of language or terminology and I can't be the only person that does this. And I said to you, oh, we're going to talk about domestic violence. This is something we really need to discuss. We're coming out of coronavirus pandemic, the lockdown. We've seen the figures, you know, in terms of the reports and the fact that they've been going up. Um, and your initial reaction to me really surprised me, but I think it was so important and you said to me, you know, hold on, Shay, we don't say domestic violence. And no one has, to this day, no one has ever corrected me. And I was really taken by that because, you know, use of language is so important. And I think, especially within the Asian community, we often don't talk about abuse as a whole. So set the record straight for, for everyone. Um, and, and I'd really like both of your opinions on this. But why should we call it domestic abuse and not domestic violence? Because this is something... I ne never was really aware of. Okay, so quite some time ago, the, the language changed from domestic violence to domestic abuse. Reason being, when we say violence, we imply physical violence, right. physical abuse, whereas the, the spectrum of types of abuse is wider than that. And by only focusing on the physical, you're ignoring emotional abuse, you're ignoring sexual abuse, financial abuse, psychological abuse, and controlling coercive behavior. So all those other forms of abuse all come under the umbrella of domestic abuse. Right. Focusing on the physical, which is serious, don't get me wrong, but isn't necessarily the main trigger of abuse that we see. Quite often the main causes or forms of abuse that we hear about is emotional abuse, that psychological abuse, that yeah. making you feel like you're, you're worthless, telling you what you can and can't do, who you can see, where you can go, if you can work, if you can continue to have an education. That is still a form of abuse. And as long as we focus on the physical, we're ignoring all of those other types of harms. So what is domestic abuse then, Shaisa? Because well, I mean, I, I think explain. Polly's really explained it. And I'll just probably add a couple of more things to that list. I think sometimes abuse can be 
non-verbal and non-physical as well. So, for example, when you isolate somebody as yes. well or when you ignore somebody, and it's a repeated pattern. Another thing that I would add is spiritual abuse as well. We had one case where um, a husband wanted his wife not to go to work, not to have an education. He, he just wanted her to get pregnant. And she was saying, no, I want to go and do all of these things. And then he called um, a faith healer or an imam to the house. Uh, and then they locked her in a room and gave her so-called holy water and they pinned her, you know, to the ground to do that. And then Goodness. she ended up calling up our helpline and we had to get her out of the house. But it was under the the, the guise Spir of spiritual, yeah, spiritual abuse. abuse. Yeah. Wow. So there was, it was justified using faith. So sometimes what happens is um, when abuse is done, mm. faith is used to try and silence the person. Because faith in South Asian communities is, is, is you know, it's quite yeah, huge. It's absolutely. quite a big part of someone's life. So that faith can be used to, con you know, wrongly used, incorrectly used to control someone and stop them from asking for help. It's interesting because when we talk about this, I'll be really frank with you. We've all seen the reports, okay, that the, the stereotype, especially within the UK, is of submissive Asian women, of the fact that, you know, um, women have no independence, we are constantly controlled. Um, and there are many women, and I think both of you actually break that stereotype, who are showing that, you know, you can have your own lives, you can be highly successful and do what you want to do. Um, and sometimes when we have these conversations, there are, there are those women within our community who are like, we need to stop talking about this because it's just implying that all Asian women can't live their lives and all Asian women are forced into marriage, which is not the case. But the truth of the matter is, and we've seen the reports, especially with coronavirus and the lockdown and the pandemic, this is happening and it's happening at the worst time, but it's really happening with Asian women, isn't it? And, and men as well. But I, I think the other thing with the domestic abuse is it can happen, you can be any age and you can be of any educational background. So it's right. like, you know, you, you know, sometimes you have that stereotype of the poor, oppressed Asian woman. Brought from but a different sometimes, country. Yeah, and, but, yeah. but, you know, some of the callers that, you know, calling our helpline, they're educated women with degrees and PhDs and wow. highly professional, but, you know, they are scared to ask for help. Sometimes they don't recognise abuse. They don't sort of yeah. see that as abuse. Perhaps they might have seen um, their mothers go through it so they it's kind of normalized in their mind and to be sort of patient and you know say stay strong for your children's sake mm. or they might be you know they might have given up their career temporarily they might be financially independent on their partner and we've had situations where women say that we have tried to go back uh, leave and go mm. to our parents house but our parents have sent us back wow. and said well no go make it work what and you know no matter what, you know, you should be you know, only be leaving that house, you know, after, you know, you've died or something like that. Because Even you know, now they, in 2020? Yeah, now. These are women that are born yeah, in this country. And, and what was really interesting with one particular case is because they don't want the stigma or the shame of divorce. And there's one really interesting case we had. A woman was in the refuge for the third time. Mm. And she said, this time, before I leave this refuge, I want you to help me get an Islamic divorce. Because if you don't do that, what will end up happening is, and this has happened twice, before when I've left the refuge and gone out of here to try and build up my own life to try and get a divorce and, yeah. and separated from my husband my own parents have forced me and pressured me to go back to him so this time if I get my divorce and leave yeah. then my parents won't Can't pressure me yeah won't pressurize me to get back together with him
I'm, I'm, I find it like you can probably tell I'm so angry because you're like, you're thinking, hold on a second. These are women. I, I was born and brought up in this country, you know, and I always pride myself in saying I'm so independent and, you know, I, I have a husband who supports me. In fact, sometimes he irritates me the amount that he pushes me to do things when I just want to sit at home and do nothing. You know, we all have those days. It's frustrating that even now this is happening. And I wonder, Polly, is part of the problem us? And when I say us, the biggest elephant in the room for me is the fact that we always talk about a patriarchal society, but it's not just the men, is it? This is also very much supported by, if not perpetuated by the women in our communities. They are sometimes the one who are actually committing the abuse. Absolutely. And I think um, Shasta explained it perfectly in that it's that notion of shame and and honour. Yeah. That often supersedes the happiness or, or the safety quite often of the person who is experiencing that abuse. And that isn't the shame and the honour that they hold. It's the shame and the honour the family or the community or society perceive that that person should hold. Mm-hmm. So I, I absolutely think that there is more that can be done. And in many of the cases that we deal with, it's not just when it comes to the issues of, for example, honour abuse, it's very different to say domestic abuse. In a domestic abuse situation, it's usually between a partner or an intimate partner or an ex-partner, quite often seen as male and female, although we recognise same-sex abuse still exists as well. Yeah. But when it comes to honour abuse, there's multiple perpetrators. There are many other people involved. Like it could be mum. Um, is complicit by not doing anything whilst dads and brothers abuse the daughter. It could be granny sitting in the corner smiling and actually she may be the one who's instigated the whole thing. In the cases that, highlighted cases that we recognise in this country, when it comes to these types of abuse, quite often it's multiple people involved and not just within the family but also within the community. Auntie walking down the street saying, yeah. did you see so-and-so wearing such-and-such yeah. could be complicit because she's now put that person at risk. Whether it was true or not is a different matter. So I, I agree with you that we as women have a role to play in ending domestic abuse but we need to be aware of what our actions are and what support mm. is available and be that support. During lockdown, we've seen so many acts of kindness people Mm. supporting their neighbors checking in on people getting them food and parcels I mean it's been phenomenal and what I would love to see is communities particularly the Asian community do the same for women check in on people ask if they're okay and if you don't like the answer if they say they're not okay or they're uncomfortable then don't feel uncomfortable and then do nothing because that shouldn't be an option we should all be looking after each other we're all supposed to be there to support each other and it seems to me that there's this invisible wall Mm. that people tend to hide behind going oh it's not my problem Mm. it's happening to somebody else it doesn't affect me well actually it kind of does something I did want to talk to you both about and part of the reason I want to talk about this is um because you know as a mum like we all do we all think about our upbringing and this I feel is one of the biggest taboos when, we, when we're talking about domestic abuse as well. And that is to do with um, sexual abuse. Uh, you know, growing up, my father used to do something. I remember I was seven years old and I genuinely thought everyone did this. And it was only until I went to secondary school that I realized not everyone does this. I think I was six or seven. My dad used to say to me and my brother, he would sit both of us and he used to say, I want you to make a circle with your arms. And so I'm, for anyone who can't see, I'm just waving my arms around me, you know, make an invisible circle around me. And he used to say, that's your, that's your personal space. No man or no woman comes in this circle. And if they do, it will be me or mum. And why would we do that if you're having a bath? And he used to really try to, and now I understand. Mm. He, my father was trying to say to me in uncertain terms, no man or no woman touches you. And 
made me at that age understand sexual abuse and what was happening. And I thought everyone talked about it. And it's only now as a grown woman when I say that, people are like, my mum and dad never even had the conversation about sex with me. You know, and I, and I wonder, is that part of the issue that we don't feel comfortable? Even now, I guarantee there'll be people listening who are going to cringe at the fact that I've used the word sex, sexual abuse, child abuse. Because, you know, uh, rape, all of these things happen at different ages. It can happen to anyone. But I find within our communities, we just don't talk about it. Do, do you see what I, I mean? I wish lots of parents would have that talk about personal boundaries and space yeah. and that, yeah. and that, that, that safety talk. Yeah. Because I think most don't. And we have a lot of calls on our helpline from adult survivors of sexual abuse. And, you know, 99% of the time, it's somebody that they know. Exactly. It's a, it's, a family it's, member. It's a family member. But it's not just a family member as in a family friend or the neighbour or an uncle. Sometimes it actually has been older brothers. It's been fathers. It's been grandfathers. The people that you should be able to trust, really. And we're seeing increasing um, amounts of peer-on-peer abuse. So it's the older cousin, for example. Right. So these talks are really, really important from a very, very young age. And then who do you go to for help? And the yeah. other pattern that we've noticed as well, that sometimes the woman in the family has been aware auntie, the mum or the granny, and perhaps they found out accidentally or the d- abuse has been disclosed to them because that may be the first person that you might go to. And then they've covered it up because it could be that, oh, well, actually the abuser might be on the mum's side of the family or yeah. maybe it's on the dad's side of yeah. the family yeah. and they just don't want to rock the boat and they cover the abuse. But what that then ends up happening is that then the abuser will carry on and yeah. abuse other members of the family. It, that, that's what my mind boggles. When I say I'm a mum, like I, I'm, I genuinely am so thankful that my dad did it, that he talked to me, right? But it's disgusting. It really is bloody disgusting that in 2020, we can't talk about a vagina. We can't talk about a period. We cannot talk about a penis without everyone freaking the hell out that, oh my God, did they just say those those words? And these things are happening. And like you said, and I bring it back to women because we're trying to celebrate each other. But if we're brushing it under the carpet, how do we ever expect any form of domestic abuse? But especially when we're talking about sexual abuse, which again can come if you could be married and you're raped by your husband. There are so many different things. How do we expect that to change? If we can't, we're still not comfortable talking about these things. This goes right back to, like you said, childhood, right? How many people listening... um, have had an experience where they've gone to a big wedding or a family gathering yeah. and the mum has said, oh, go and have a dance or go kiss auntie or go sit on uncle's lap or give Jaja a hug, whatever it might yeah. be. What they're actually doing is saying your body doesn't belong to you. Right. And if I tell you to go sit on somebody's knee or give so-and-so a kiss or dance because it would make me look good, what they're actually doing is saying that everyone has the right to enter that circle, that space. yeah. yeah. And that's where we need it to stop at the very beginning. Stop using children and ignoring children's wishes. Not even even shaking hands. We know right now we're not shaking mm. hands. Mm. But the reality is it's a, it's a voluntary action. But if you're a child and you're being told you have to kiss or hug or, or, or touch another human, another you adult, that you, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, are, you're, you're normalizing right. that behavior. So as they grow up, they think they it's okay. They think yeah. it's okay because they've been conditioned to do so. So I think there's a huge responsibility from a young age in order to address that. And the second point around that is when a child does disclose abuse, it's really hard. Particularly, quite often, we were talking about this earlier about the um, the national inquiry into child sexual abuse, which mm. we were involved in a few years ago. And from that report that we did, and my 
I was on the panel looking at child sexual abuse within the familial environment, mm. i.e. within the family. Mm. More often than not, when a child did disclose abuse, it was either to a teacher or to the mother. Okay. And in 70% of those cases, it either got worse or nothing happened. Wow. And so that needs to change as well. Yeah. We need to flip that narrative that what is a safe space, you should be able to disclose. Firstly, it shouldn't happen in the first place, and education plays a key role in that. But it also plays a key role within the family. As families, we need to have those conversations. Not that it happens to other people or it happens to bad children. Mm. It can happen to anyone. Yeah, that's right. And if it does happen to your child, God forbid, anyone's child, then they need to have that support. But if they feel that they can't talk about it, like you said, we can't, we don't still don't talk about sex. Yeah. We don't talk about periods. We don't talk about, I mean, thankfully, this, this is now becoming more mainstream and we are starting to address these issues. But for generations, it still is the case that certain topics are off the subject. They're off the subject. And I wonder, because I know like my mind boggles right now because it's that, you know, you're thinking of it. It's such a wide spectrum to, to discuss when we talk about domestic abuse. And and yes, we, we've, you know, we've. I feel like we're only touching the surface of, of what there is to talk about with this. But and I know it's quite a sharp left turn as I'm, I'm trying to move and navigate in this conversation, but um, you mentioned both of you earlier on about um, emotional abuse and psychological abuse and control that could be financial. And I just wonder if we could talk about that side of things as well, because um, often, you know, and I think you're both going to agree with this, I, I believe within the Asian community, we put pride and then shame at such a high pillar that, you know, we we will never talk about anything because what will people say? That's all we're ever worried about. And I feel that that possibly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is part of the reason why within our community, we're not dealing with domestic abuse, whether it is psychological, because we don't want anyone else to know about it. We don't even recognize it it as abuse, because if you're not physically being hit, if he's just saying something to you, that can't be abusive. Well, actually, Mm. that's probably the most harm. I'll give an example of this woman and she had a love marriage and she had a love marriage against her family's wishes. Okay. So that made it a little bit harder for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She she rings up the help like so she's actually, you know, fought the world to marry this guy. Um and she was in her twenties. But she sort of when she rang, I think eventually sort of she she rang because she got depressed and that's why she'd rang, not because she thought she was being abused. She didn't recognise the abuse. She rang because she was depressed. And when we sort of unpicked her situation, and the situation was this, that he would go out to work and lock her in the house. And this is someone born, what? brought up in this country, educated in this country. Yeah. And he, she was not allowed to wear makeup. She had to stay in her pyjamas all day. She had to come off all of her social media. He would wow. come home and check her text messages she, if she went to the GP or shopping, he would then escort her, but he would lock the door from the outside. So the safety risk here, she was allowed to go to the back garden. So she was allowed out there to maybe put the bins out, or sit in the garden. Um, and eventually, you know, she had a baby. So he thought, you know, that, that will keep her busy. So she's not going to want to go out. And she was escorted everywhere. In the end, she got depressed because she wasn't allowed to see her friends. Occasionally, she could see cousins pretty much hardly spoke to her family as well. Her family were in spe- on speaking terms with mm. her, but I think, you know, he uses an excuse, well, your family don't like me. But she thought it was because he loved her. And in the end, we had to sort of, talk, you know, go through each you know, yeah. thing that he was doing to her. Yeah. Um, and then even then, she was ringing and she had to clear her history. 
and then event eventually she did recognize it was abuse we then you know made provision for her to go to a, a refuge wow. in the end she backed out because she goes oh I had a conversation with him and he said he's going to change his ways um and then disengaged from us um but we don't think he would have changed his ways he may right. have done it for a week or two but he probably would have gone back to the same pattern so that that what you're talking about is specifically domestic abuse although yeah. people would just her, think, I was going to say exactly yeah, yeah. it's the control yeah. right and and I wonder if that do you think that's part of the issue that we have within our communities because there's another example you know we've all seen those like star plus shows like Sarspikabi Bahuti or you know you know um, a mother-in-law was once a daughter-in-law and there are so many other types of coercive control which is domestic abuse it could be coming from a mother-in-law a father-in-law a brother-in-law is that something that you you have, have found in your experience as well that people maybe don't recognize or they just think it's okay this is what happens within our communities we have to respect our elders if they're telling me I can't talk to this person that's what I should be doing yeah I mean we've seen in the news particularly around the impact COVID has had on yeah. South Asian particularly South Asian communities and part of that is in houses of multiple generational households oh I, I see in other words, to us, in-laws. Right? Okay. So if you're living because with the grandparents, if you're living with the, the parents and you've got the children and all in one house. Yeah. Right. So we, we see a huge amount of issues arising from in-laws. That's not to say all in-laws are bad. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Can I just make that note? I live with my in-laws and they, <laughs> you know, right now my daughter is with my in-laws and, and I'm very blessed. And you're right. There, there are many people like me who are very happy with their in-laws. But go ahead. But there are some where the understanding is once you get married, you move in with your in-laws mm. and then you become part of that household mm -hmm. but where you might not necessarily get on with those in-laws and you want to move out firstly it's it's the whole pressure on that person to be able to take that step to for her and her husband to move mm. away and we've had quite a few cases the last few months where they've wanted to move away from the family and the family have put pressure on them to remain to the point where they've been told you can't move out because because of COVID, there isn't going to be enough properties for you to move into. Wow. And because of COVID, you're more likely to get it because you're going to be outside our unit. Because of this, you're going to lose your job and then you are not going to be able to afford to pay rent. And then so you, won't, you won't be allowed back. <laughs> and so yeah. people using this current um, pandemic as an excuse, a reasoning to control people to stay within the home. And it's not just within the indoor setting, but we are seeing that quite a lot. In fact, we've seen quite a lot of calls coming through where women are looking to get a divorce. You saw what happened in China after the, the, their pandemic. They mm. had a 50% increase in divorce cases because women under lockdown were suffering so significantly mm. yeah. that once they were out, I suspect we're going to see something very similar here. Not because typically Asian couples are in trouble, mm. but because for those who are in abusive situations, it's taken to this extreme point, this unprecedented situation for them to be able to say, I can't do this anymore. I want to add something about extended families. It's yes. really important to note because we often talk about sometimes, oh, you know, it's not just the partner, it can be the in-laws mm. that are being abusive, but also it's probably against the law, I'd say, that you're witnessing abuse and then you're not actually reporting it. You're complicit. A, case yeah. a few years ago where I think an Asian woman, I think maybe from Birmingham or West Midlands, was murdered and there were people in the house who would see the beating, who didn't do anything, who didn't report it, didn't call the doctor, didn't call the ambulance, didn't right. call the police, didn't challenge the abuse um, and then she ended up getting murdered. And they were also convicted and sentenced as well. 
So I think it's really important for people out there that if you are seeing abuse, you're witnessing abuse and you're actually being silent, don't want them to think, well, actually, it's got nothing to do with me. Actually, you can be convicted as well yeah, because yeah. you could have intervened and done something and you haven't done that. Jim, you know, what staggers, and, and I, could, I could talk to you both and I think you're just fantastic women, honestly, forever. But, but, but I, there's something that comes to my mind. Eight years ago, I did a documentary for BBC um, at which time the country was debating whether or not we should make forced marriage legal, which I just thought, I thought was hilarious that we were even having that conversation because you're being forced into something, surely it should be illegal. But the reason I talk about that is because of the cultural sensitivities. And, and I really would like both of your experiences because you are, you know, leading within this field, especially you're on the ground hearing the voices. It's part of the problem also, time and time again, when we've seen that when women go and ask for help, people don't understand them. I'm talking about the help that we have, whether it's the police services, whether it's, you know, GPs who due to cultural sensitivity, oh no, that's their culture. They don't want to say anything or they don't understand what is happening. So even if a woman is, or a man, let me be clear, a man or a woman is asking for help. It's not, it's not reaching to them fast enough because we've got a lot of explaining and understanding to do in this country around the South Asian community and understanding what is right and wrong, really. I think that when it comes to forced marriage, I think police are a lot better now. I mm. think they do recognise it. In fact, they probably, you know, want conviction, so they probably will get onto that straight away. But I think it's the honour-based abuse that's okay. probably not as well recognised. So, for yeah. example, we get uh, quite a few calls where it's it, it's a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, and, and, and the woman rings in or the young woman rings in and said, actually split up my boyfriends and now he's blackmailing me with revenge porn. Wow. And he's sort of saying, this is going to go to your family, your dad, okay. right? And then she's then becomes at risk of honor-based violence. But in the police's mind, a revenge porn and it's not online yet. So therefore we can't do anything yet. So they kind of see it from a very from a particular lens they mm. don't think actually there's an element of they they are utilizing honor based abuse they're using that as a threat so that's a tool so yeah so one of the things that we we're saying that they're looking at the revenge porn law to maybe i think um, upgrade it um, and look at it again and we're saying actually you should probably increase sentencing for right. those who use the honor based abuse element as a threat and they should their sentencing should they be should, increased they should. yeah um, I, I have so much that I, I, firstly, I have to thank you. I guarantee anyone listening will just want to just thank both of you for the amazing work that you're doing. But I, something I want to ask you, I feel drained. It's 28 minutes in. I'm like, wow, you know, so much to process. No, but what I mean by that is, you know, I know anyone listening is going to be like, this is happening and it's going to be emotionally draining. And I just want to know from both of you, what gets you up in the morning to want to be able to do this kind of work? Because... I am so inspired, but at the same time, you have to be a particular kind of person who is going to go up against, sometimes not a person, but a whole family, right? When you're dealing with this and the likelihood is sadly, like you just said earlier on, even if a woman knows or a man knows they're a victim, they may end up, it may not be a success story. They may end up just staying within that situation. How, how do you both manage to do this every day, day in, day out, I wonder? Can I tell you a story? Please. Okay. About five years ago, on a Friday evening, I received an email from a young girl saying she's been forced into a marriage. Mum can't do anything. Dad's pushing it forward. Can I help? 
I had 10 minutes. This is what we call the one chance rule. You've only got one chance to help that person. And with that 10 minutes, we looked at the safeguarding and created a plan to keep us safe over the weekend and have a plan for, for what to do next. On Monday morning, and we kept in touch. She had a mobile phone taken away with her from her over the weekend. So I all weekend, I was petrified for yeah. her. Come Monday morning, because we had made a plan in 10 minutes on the Friday night, the police arrived at her door at 6 a.m., not in uniform. Um, she was aware of that, and she was able to come down before everyone else woke up to open the door to let them in because she physically couldn't walk out that door unless they were there. Wow. They were then able to to tr- rescue her and take her somewhere safe. They arrived so early so as not to co- let the neighbours see that the police yeah. had arrived. Protect the they arrived in plain clothes to ensure that there wasn't any conversations or, you know, twitching mm. the curtains and such. But the most important thing was to get her safe. She she was safe. And at one point, she was so impressed with the way the police had supported her, she actually said she wanted to be a police officer. Wow. Because she wanted to help others who were in the same situation as her. Fast forward to a few years ago now, when Instagram just started, the first thing we did on our Instagram for, for the Sharon Project was a small video, mm. um, just to say we're here and everything mm. else. The first message I got on there was, hi, you won't remember remember me but you saved my life and it was that 17 year old girl and she's doing so well and she's finished her education she's in a she's working towards a good job she's in a healthy relationship and she recognizes and remembers everything that's led her to where she is now that's what gets me out of bed and there are thousands more stories like that and that's what keeps you going. And what about you, Chester? Well, I'll just I'll use something of nicely, really, saving lives. But I think it's making a difference to other people's lives, even if it's a small difference. Even if they don't take action straight away, you've basically given them the information so they can make informed choices. And that might be a week later, it might be a year later, it might be five years later. But ultimately, we are, we are also saving lives. With that in mind, you're talking to that woman down the line now, or man, what would you say to them? What piece of advice, that one piece of advice to take away as we end now? I would say ask for help. If it's not us or a helpline, speak to somebody, you know, whether it's somebody at work, someone you trust, a family friend, because sometimes it can be that other person that makes the call for you. Because these people ringing up the helpline aren't necessarily the victims themselves. Someone sometimes does it for them. And what about yourself, Polly? Just to echo that you're not on your own. Where you can speak to someone, a trusted friend, a teacher or anybody that you can trust. It's really important that for your mental health as well as everything else, that you're not holding it in. And to also know that you might hear stories about what it's like on the outside and that refuges are bad places and people don't care. Mm. The reality is when you get that right level of support, we're with you all the way, Mm. you know. And so it might seem dark right now. But as soon as you pick up that phone, no matter how hard it is, it will get better. What are the websites if anyone wants help? So how do we get in touch with Sharon Project? So you can get through to our website, Sharon, S-H-A-R-A-N.org.uk, or to our phone line, which is 0844-504-3231. And for yourself as well, Uh, Shasta. Muslim Women's Network Helpline, uh, which is mwnhelpline.co.uk, and the free phone number is 0800 triple nine five seven eight six shyster polly thank you so much we need more women like you i hope we can do this again it's a real honor for me to have you on the podcast thank you ladies thank you